0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 204, Confronting Yiddish Shame. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And this is episode two of a series of episodes we're doing in collaboration with the Yiddish Book Center in celebration of the Book Center's 40th anniversary and what they have announced as the upcoming Decade of Discovery. Each year for the next 10 years, they are going to be exploring a different aspect of the story of Yiddish. 2020 is called Cultural Encounters, Yiddish in America. And last week, in an episode entitled Yiddish in America, we interviewed the founder of the Yiddish Book Center, Aaron Lansky. And today we're going to be interviewing one of the Yiddish Book Center's earliest student interns who has now been for many years a professor of associated topics. But before we get into that, we have something really exciting to announce, and we're looking for your help. We are finally ready to put together the first book of the Judaism Unbound podcast, and we're calling it Judaism Unbound Bound. In order to raise the money that we need to be able to put this book together and to produce it and get it to you, we are launching a Kickstarter campaign that allows you to make a small contribution through which you will help us get the project going and get the project done. And also, at most levels of support, you'll get a free book when the book comes out. We're going to officially be launching this Kickstarter this coming Tuesday, January 14th, but you can take a look at it now, although you can't contribute yet, if you go to www.judaismunbound.com book. That will automatically take you to the Kickstarter page where you can check it out, look around, and also give us any feedback that you want to give us before the campaign officially launches on Tuesday. On Tuesday, you can come back and actually start to support the campaign. And we hope that you will, because we're looking forward to announcing next week how the project is doing in its first few days when we announce the launch formally on next week's podcast. Just to explain a little bit more about this project, the Judaism Unbound podcast has been around for just about four years. We've done over 200 episodes. We've got well over a million downloads, getting closer to a million and a half. And we think it's time to start to put the podcast together in new ways that help people jump into it, put some of the ideas together. The book is going to include some introductory material by us, some discussion questions after each interview that would help you discuss the book with others, that would help book clubs talk about it, maybe what we could call podcast clubs talk about it. We've had all kinds of requests over the years for some version of this that we're excited to finally be able to put it together. Now, by any stretch of the imagination, we can't put the entire podcast into a single book. So we're thinking about this book as volume one. If it's successful, we really look forward to creating volume two, three, four, and many other volumes. So we really hope that you'll help us launch into this in a really successful way. If you make any donation $18 and above to support this project, your name will appear in the book in the acknowledgement section. We're asking a little more for you to be actually sent a copy of the book for free, but any amount of support is so appreciated that we're going to put your name in the acknowledgement section. So thank you so much in advance for helping us launch this. We'll have more to say about it next week, and we're really excited to get this project finally off the ground. We hope that the book will be in your hands by the end of the spring. Now, turning to today's episode, our guest today is Nomi Seidman. She is the Chancellor Jackman Professor in the Arts at the University of Toronto, and until recently was the Koret Professor of Jewish Culture and the Director of the Richard S. Dinner Center for Jewish Studies at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Her scholarship focuses on contemporary Jewish thought, gender and sexuality, and modern Jewish literature and literary theory. Her research and teaching interests include translation studies, translating the Bible, the sexual transformation of the Ashkenaz, and Haskalah literature, that is, literature from the Jewish Enlightenment. She is the author of a number of books with wonderful titles and even better content, including A Marriage Made in Heaven, the Sexual Politics of Hebrew and Yiddish, Faithful Renderings, Jewish-Christian Difference and the Politics of Translation, and The Marriage Plot, or How Jews Fell in Love with Love and with Literature. Her most recent book and her most recent project is entitled Sarah Schneer and the Base Yaakov Movement, A Revolution in the Name of Tradition. We're going to talk about all these subjects and more with Nomi Seidman. So let's jump right into it. Nomi Seidman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you.
2: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here.
0: So I guess I wanted to start a little bit since we're looking in this series at the impact of the Yiddish Book Center and i guess my question for somebody who has become a yiddish professor in the last 40 years sometime how did you become a yiddish professor what's the story that brings one to this point
2: it wasn't a very direct route even though yiddish was my first language the first class i ever took in yiddish a formal academic university class wasn't until i i think i was already Passed my doctoral exams and starting to write my dissertation, it wasn't offered, as far as I know, at Brooklyn College where I got my undergraduate. Um, It wasn't offered at UC Berkeley where I got my PhD, and it also just never occurred to me that I had any kind of capital, intellectual capital, by knowing Yiddish. I saw a poster up in the hall, Dounell Hall at uh, UC Berkeley, and it was a summer internship program. It was the first of the summer internship programs. And they actually paid back in those days. And I applied. And that was when I realized that knowing Yiddish was a rarity, which somehow hadn't occurred to me, so that I had something that other people didn't have that I could monetize. I could get paid for. Um, There was nothing else. I mean, I have no other skills. So that was really just a gift. Um, And it was at the Yiddish Book Center that I came up with I came up with, that Aaron Lansky said something that had never occurred to me, that I'd never heard about growing up. I mean, I grew up in a Yiddish-speaking home, but there were no books of Yiddish literature that I can recall. Um, Nobody talked about Shalom Aleichem or anything like that. My father was a Yiddish writer, not my mother, but that was where I heard about the associations between Yiddish and Jewish women from Aaron Lansky. The classes were very minimal. There were maybe three one-hour classes a week. Um, Most of the time, we were just schlepping books in a dirty warehouse. So the combination of hearing that idea from Aaron Lansky and recognizing that I had some kind of rare skill that other people lacked that I could actually somehow get paid to utilize, Um, was wonderful. I mean, I'm being a little bit cynical maybe, but the truth is that I also started to fall in love with Yiddish, which seems like it's part of the world of Yiddish. I mean, people don't go into this the way they go into, I don't know, accounting. There seems to be some love affair that at least is part of the story at the beginning. So yes, I also fell in love with Yiddish, uh, and I'm still falling in love with Yiddish.
0: So, I guess the natural questions that arise are, number one, how did you come to already know Yiddish? What was the story of your having grown up in a Yiddish-speaking household? And then, just curious, what was it that you were in graduate school for? What were you trying to become?
2: The reason Yiddish was my first language is that my parents are Holocaust survivors, and I grew up in Borough Park, um, an ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And Yiddish was the language that my parents spoke to each other, the language, you know, as I said, it was my first language. And when I started Brooklyn College, I guess I realized that I had a leg up on German. There were all these people who studied German and then switched to Yiddish. I basically used my Yiddish to get away with studying German. So I studied literature. German literature was one of the literatures I studied. I... um, In graduate school, I tried to figure out how to monetize my unhappy childhood in other ways. I studied the Bible in Greek, so I I spent a year at Hebrew University uh, researching the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It's still one of the things that I write about. So I don't really have a field, but I've figured out ways to take this extremely spotty very rich in some ways and very poor in other ways, education that I received um, in the Orthodox community of Brooklyn to um, try to get a paycheck.
0: You know, we spoke to Aaron Lansky recently and got his side of the story about how the Yiddish Book Center was founded and what was going through his mind. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was like in those early days? I mean, you spoke about it a little bit, but like, who were the other fellows? What What was going on there? What were What, what did it feel like in the early years of an institution that has since become quite an institution?
2: There were six of us. I was the grand old lady at 26, I believe. There was one other person, the name was, I think, Dorothy Bluma in Yiddish, who was from Paris, who knew Yiddish. The rest of the gang knew some aliphbes, alf- the Hebrew-Yiddish alphabet, enough to shelve in alphabetical order. But Bluma and I were in charge of, the letting, of deciding whether a book was fiction or nonfiction, or, or even whether it was Yiddish at all, which other people couldn't necessarily tell. Um, There was just the big old warehouse, and um, it wasn't air conditioned. It was huge, and it was filled with Yiddish books, also some Hebrew books, up to, I'd say, about knee level. And there were parts of the warehouse where you actually walked on books to get from one spot to the other. And there was a bicycle in case the phone rang or somebody called you from the office to get from one end of the warehouse floor to the other, because otherwise it would take you a good few minutes to schlep from one side to the other. It was one of the most fun summers of my life. It was totally crazy, totally wild. I think Lancy was 29 years old. He was the big grown-up. Or I think he said he was 29 for a few years. So it was one of the years he was 29
1: a lot of fun stuff there. I love the image of the bicycle to go from one end of this of this warehouse to the other. That's spectacular. Um cool. Okay. So, I I have a little bit of a shifting gears question, but I think um I think it'll be an exciting thread to go down, which is you mentioned you have many different fields or I th- well you said you had no field, but you have many different interests yeah. that you that you like to write about. Um which we often enjoy having such folks on our show because, you know, traveling from one disparate realm of human experience and knowledge to another is something we also like to do. But um, gender, gender and language, gender and Yiddish in particular opens up a huge box of conversation. But um, let's talk more about that. How has Yiddish manifested – I mean, it's hard to ask this in a way across like historical realms, etc. But like, when we think about Yiddish, I think um, I've read some of your work and some of others about the the connections made between Yiddish and sort of the feminine. Um, talk to us about Yiddish's gender questions, because um, we with Aaron Lansky, I think, in that conversation hinted a smidge at that direction. But I'm curious to hear more from you who has written a lot about that. So first of
2: all, there are some actual historical phenomena that explain the relationship between Yiddish and Jewish women, but it's more in the realm of cultural myth. Um, it's funny, There, I got a review in the Fulverts when the book came out in Yiddish and the guy said, this is a cultural myth. And I was like, yeah, it's a cultural myth, but just saying it's a cultural myth in the sense that maybe it's not entirely true. Um, That's the beginning of a research project. That's not the end of a research project. We don't write about this because it's a cultural myth. So it's a myth because it was always a certain kind of fiction. It's interesting because it's the connection between Hebrew and Yiddish, Hebrew and masculinity actually has more historical heft to it. In other words, it's more true that the knowledge of Hebrew was limited to Jewish men, or to an elite group of Jewish men, then it's true that Yiddish was actually historically related to a female readership. So the question is, what's that about historically, and what's the power of the myth? Those are two related questions, but they're not the same question. So historically, because women didn't have access to Hebrew texts, that was also true of a lot of men. But It was true in a different way for men and for women. For men, it was true because, at least in principle, they were supposed to know Hebrew, but in fact, most of them didn't. Whereas for women, they they weren't required to learn Torah all day, so their lack of Hebrew was kind of officially okay. They become a kind of excuse for translating the Bible. You say, well, women can't read the Bible in Hebrew, so let's translate it, and then All the men read it, too, who also can't read the Bible in Hebrew, but they're not the official reason for this translation having been done, because in principle, they're supposed to know Hebrew, and the fact that they don't is a kind of embarrassment that nobody wants to lend any legitimacy to. So women are a kind of legal fiction for a a genre of religious literature in Yiddish that's directed toward them that's roughly... A little bit later, but very similar to the Reformation translation of the Bible, to Martin Luther's translation of the Bible, or the King James Bible, all those Bibles were directed at uneducated people. Jews also had uneducated people, but if they were male, they were sort of legislated out of existence, Um, whereas the only people who were allowed to be uneducated were women.
0: I'm just wondering, were the men that were reading this literature, was it like the, the kids who are reading a comic book, you know, in class and it's kind of hidden in the book? I mean, did they have to hide that they were accessing this literature or sort of once it was there, it was kind of like you could read it, but it wasn't considered all that honorable?
2: We have so many descriptions of the shame that was felt by Jewish men at reading literature that's designated for women. So not only did this phenomenon create a whole new genre of, you know, quote unquote, women's literature, it also created a whole new phenomenology of Jewish masculinity, which is a Jewish masculinity that's understood to be defective and feminized by virtue of its participation in either as readers or even as writers. You think being a writer would be macho enough to help you deal with that shame. But Mendela talks about how when he first started to write Yiddish, he hid his shame under a talis, as we know as a male, a, a prayer shawl worn by men. He was an, let's call it an out Hebrew writer. At the same time, he was a secret Yiddish writer. So certainly, and he said even his readers, his male readers were embarrassed to be seen when they were caught with the Yiddish book, they would say, oh, I just wanted to see what the women were reading. But the (laughs) truth is, they wanted to read that stuff.
1: I'd love to think and talk more about that word shame. It came up here, and it's come up in other conversations we've had about Yiddish. I want to connect that to something that came up earlier about Hebrew, and I I felt like Hebrew was this macho, masculine endeavor And Israel, as sort of a nation-state manifestation of that, was this, you know, supremely proud part of Jewish identity in contemporary life. And in many ways, it seems like that was almost a response specifically to the ways in which Yiddish was seen as feminine and diminished. Like, why is it that Yiddish not only was associated with femininity, but then was sort of suppressed um, and became a source of that shame.
2: I actually think, I was just talking about how the story of Yiddish is, how, how often it's, it's involved with all kinds of intense emotions. I mean, I was talking about the love that you have for Yiddish. And part of that love is, is also very connected with shame, that Yiddish is just felt to be a shameful language that needs to be suppressed. I mean, the word language doesn't capture what people felt about it in the 19th century. It took until the end of the 19th century for anybody to say, this is an actual language. Until then, it was just felt to be a horrendously mispronounced, grotesque, I mean, I think you really have to teach people, if they don't know, if they, if they, if they haven't acquired this, that what does it mean that you're, you're speaking a language that's just understood to be a sign of your coarseness, of your lack of education, of your your lack of suitability to be in proper society. Um, And and this continues. I mean, it continues for centuries. I mean, some of it has to do with its associations with women. Some of it has has to do with its associations with the backward Jewish, Eastern European, impoverished, disempowered experience. I mean, shame itself is an under explored. I mean, there's now something called affect studies. And actually shame is one of the is one of the big things that people are studying because shame is shame is a very interesting and complicated emotion because it's one thing it's intersubjective. There's a there's a moment, I think it's in um, a Primo Levi autobiography, in which he talks about how the moment that the concentration camp doors were opened, the first emotion they felt after the the relief of liberation was shame. That something about where they were, I mean, and, and that you could feel shame for someone else's sin against you. I felt it myself, I remember just I have a Hebrew name and a Yiddish name and actually Shandel is my Shandel know me. And I always felt like Shandel was an embarrassing name to have. And Nomi is a cool name. Naomi. Because one is Hebrew and one is Yiddish. I was always a little embarrassed to have a Yiddish name. And Shandel was the family name, and Naomi was like the modern Zionist name. It was their stepping out of that Eastern European framework. Obviously, not there are there are different forms of Yiddish and shame depending on which era you're talking about. The kind of shame I'm talking about with exposure of a Jewish internal interiority and exposure of Jewish past. That has to do with Jews' attempt to integrate into European society. That particular form of shame, you try to hide your backward Eastern European roots, builds upon and gets energy from that earlier form of shame, which is the shame of Jewish men reading Yiddish. And this was always the majority of Jewish men that couldn't actually make their way through a Hebrew book.
0: Our podcast, really, from the very beginning, we've been trying to help people not feel shame about the kind of Jew they are or the, you know, and it's interesting to, it's interesting to sort of think about how what you're talking about is the shame that people who I think a lot of our listeners might imagine as the kind of more authentic or old school kind of Jews. And they felt this deep shame about their kind of inability to fully connect with the wider world around them. And, now it feels like there are so many people who are so connected with the wider world around them that are trying to find a point of access to Judaism and trying to handle and deal with the shame that comes from a sense that they don't know enough about Judaism. It's just interesting to me to reflect.
2: The philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel said that in Europe, Jews were Moranos, right? They were European on the outside, covering over their hidden Jewish selves. And in the United States, he said, there are reverse Muranos. There are people who are proudly Jews, you'd say Jews on the on the streets and just people in the sheets, right? Just covering over a kind of lack of deep connection with Jewishness or or inherited knowledge or Jewish languages. That shame now comes in reverse form is, is is fascinating. I mean, the uh, there have been a lot of interesting reversals of this sort.
1: I want to talk about translation. So we've talked a little about Yiddish, we've talked about Hebrew, we've talked about the relationship. Now let's talk about like how languages are rendered from one to the other with translation. And part of why I'm so excited to talk to you about that is because a subtitle of one of your books is The Politics of Translation. So that's exciting to me because it implies that there is politics to translating things, which I don't know that everybody always intuits. I think sometimes people think, okay, you know, you're translating a thing from one language into the other. Like, so you do the best you can, and maybe it is slightly different in the new language, but I don't know that there's people that are like, ah, there would be political agendas at play and that could affect um, how a reader experiences those texts. I think it's very true. So, I'm curious to hear what kinds of politics manifest when translating uh, maybe Yiddish to English, but really I'm, I'm open to between and to whatever kinds of origin and target languages. Um, what what are you getting at with politics of translation? Um, does it connect to some of the politics of gender that we've talked about thus far? What happens politically when somebody takes on a project of translating? And, you know, if this is relevant, I know you've done translating work yourself. Like, have you experienced any of those, like, political choices or moments yourself?
2: Wow, thank you. One of my fields um, is translation studies. And translation studies in the 1990s, like many other fields, had an explosion of new insights. And it basically, the whole field went from thinking about um, translation as a kind of purely linguistic operation, where How do you capture this nuance in that language? And the question of equivalence was the language that people used to talk about translation. Problems of equivalence. In the 1990s, you get the recognition that languages are not just neutral media of communication, where you you can have a whole line of uh, dictionaries on your shelf, and they're all more or less equivalent. There's one called French, there's one called German. They're all trying to do more or less the same thing. The major insight of postcolonial translation studies is that languages are the kind of repository for very complex cultural formations that exist not in isolation, but in relation to other cultural formations. And that translation is the negotiation of basically asymmetrical, unbalanced, historically rivals or or allies, or whatever the case may be, but real relationships that connect these cultures, either in the same time or across time. So now it's when you translate from Hebrew to English, you're not just translating from one language to another using bilingual dictionaries, you're translating from one cultural formation, which is modern Hebrew-Israeli culture, to, let's say, English culture, which could be American-Jewish, what? What's the audience that you're going for? So the choice of what gets translated and how. um, The kind of politics that I'm interested in, in terms of Jewish languages and how they get translated, are the question of how you translate between Jewish and non-Jewish languages, between non-Jewish languages and Jewish languages. So all those cases in which there's some kind of barrier, there's some kind of cultural barrier, between Jews and non-Jews. There's some kind of difference that um, you have to get past. In terms of Yiddish and English, the politics of translating Yiddish into English supercharged when you translate a Holocaust narrative into English. It's felt to be, it's not just a simple act of finding translational equivalents. It's redeeming the story of these people who were killed. It's telling their story in a language in which They themselves did not live. How how do you do that? How do you get across the Yiddishness of the experience as they experienced it? The things that Elie Wiesel was prepared to say in Yiddish that he was not prepared to say in French in night. Um, So there were certain things he said in Yiddish that he didn't say in in French. And this is a self-translation. So it's really, I think, very notable when somebody says speaks one way to a Jewish audience and then speaks another way to a non-Jewish audience. I myself had the same problem that all Jewish translators have in translating Jewish sources, which is how do you translate a certain kind of, a certain way in which Yiddish in particular distinguishes between Jews and non-Jews? How do you translate the word guy? and now you you said that I should translate every Yiddish word I <laughs> use, but I can't translate this one. Um, you already see there are all kinds of um, there are all kinds of issues, some of which could be called linguistic. What actually is the translation of the word guy? Is it Gentile? Is it non-Jew? But they're also political because to say the word guy in a Yiddish or a Hebrew story that's published in nineteen oh four, and to say it in two thousand and 20 has a completely different charge to say it in a completely Jewish circle and to say it in a non-Jewish circle. There are entire passages in which Jews reflect about non-Jews in language that it's in a language that's understood to be accessible only to Jews. And there's certain things that you say about non-Jews in internal Jewish circles that you don't say in circles in which there are non-Jews present. How do you deal with the translation of a language that's understood to be a private, interior Jewish language, in which Jews can make fun of non-Jews? Not only can they make fun of non-Jews, but it's a distinctive part of the cultural pleasures made available in these languages, that you make fun of Christianity, for instance. How do you even explain this to contemporary American Jews, who don't know that Jews ever made fun of Christians, because they grew up in polite, multicultural societies? half of their friends were Christians. So it isn't even a question of translating it to non-Jews. It's a question of translating it to for Jews.
1: I really want to talk through the distinction between Jewish languages and non-Jewish languages that just came up. Like, what is a Jewish language? What isn't? How could languages we don't think of as Jewish languages, like English, since that's my first language, like how could they in certain senses be Jewish languages? Or are they already? Or or like all these rambling questions in my head. And I've generally made the claim, and I'm interested if you would push back on this, Uh, I've generally made the claim that any language can potentially be a Jewish language. And what I'm generally trying to convey with that is that I think we have this barrier, this like authenticity barrier, where we in many spaces, maybe it goes to the shame piece before, like people who don't have a deep relationship to either Hebrew or Yiddish, or we could add Ladino. People who don't have a a deep relationship to a language that is associated specifically with Jews often feel that as a result, they are, and I'm going to use words that I've heard from others that I wouldn't use myself, but like that they're less Jewish or a bad Jew or all those things. And I think Um, There's also this barrier where people, from our perspective, we're so interested in having people, even who don't have a ton of what they would term like Jewish knowledge, we're interested in all sorts of people making contributions to Judaism, many of whom don't have any knowledge of Hebrew or Yiddish. So if they were going to do so, it would be in a different language. And so... I have, like, those layers of baggage when I hear the phrase non-Jewish language. I don't know that you meant it to to convey all of those things, but I'm also, I'm open to pushback. I'm, like, really open, in, especially in this conversation, to, like, look, Lex, there's some things about languages that are made by communities of Jews for their own purposes that might not be replicable in other languages. But basically, I'd love to open up that conversation, like, can other languages that are not only Jewish languages still be a kind of Jewish language?
2: I love that question. It's actually one of the questions that people are looking at in, in translation studies, where we no longer believe there is this thing called French that comes from a place called France that has a, you know, a floor in the university that where they teach French. We understand that languages are much more porous and what constitutes a language, again, it's, it, it's part of a kind of national politics that we want to Undermine a little bit. Just to remember, I mean, Yiddish was not its own language. It was some kind of, you know, what we no longer call Creole or Pidgin or jargon, right? It was some form of the language that was spoken by everyone around them. And the main reason it sort of had enough of a distinctiveness to actually be persuasive as a national language is because it was written in Hebrew letters and because it was. Taken from one place to another, where it developed, in, you know, separately than German. The kind of the oddity of the history of Yiddish um, allows us to see it as a kind of language, but really, you know, it's not clear that it was a separate language, even for the few hundred years that it was it was written in in Germany in Hebrew letters. And why was it written in Hebrew letters? Why were all these Jewish? I mean, the main distinction between English let's say as spoken by Jews, and German as spoken by Jews, otherwise known as Yiddish, is that Yiddish was written in Hebrew letters, historically, and not even always. To me, one of the things that's so interesting is translation between Yiddish and German. It's a kind of unusual translation because it's a translation that's readily, you take a Yiddish text, and 90% of it just write in different letters, and there's your translation. So what kind of translation is that? But basically I'm just agreeing with you that there's something about the distinction of a Jewish language that is I think very usefully complicated that it isn't entirely a Jewish language. On the other hand, you also have the circumstance of Jews speaking a variety of German that's gone its own way to the point that they're not entirely transparent to each other um in you know countries where people are speaking Slavic languages and there are millions of people doing this. You get this, I think, unique historical circumstance without necessarily having to say this is a, a distinct language, you can still say that these are that the cultural possibilities of being able to speak with Jews in ways that non-Jews don't understand, that constitutes a real cultural difference that I think is no longer I mean is no longer available to English speakers, without saying that anybody's more authentic than anybody else. You know, where it is that you can find these internal Jewish spaces, they were never foolproof. They were never, I mean, they were always, you know, they were always permeable. But where you can find them, whether they can be constructed in English. I mean, I think someone like Lenny Bruce was actually trying to construct a space where things could be said as if, I mean, he's willing to use the word guy on a state, right? Uh, What is it? North Dakota is guyish. Billings, Montana is Guyish. If you're a New Yorker, even if you're not Jewish, you know the word Guyish. Lenny Bruce is right there on that cusp that you're talking about of, of the kind of movement of some of these cultural characteristics that then get transferred into a public space to such rich cultural effects.
0: When the Torah, let's say, was translated into Yiddish, like we were talking about earlier, for women and men started reading it and everybody was reading it and you you then later you were talking about how when you translate into another language you know how how can you translate certain things that you know really are foreign to that language and and the torah being translated into yiddish and then becoming known to the majority of jews both men and women in its yiddish form just as The Bible today is known to the majority of American Jews, probably in its English form. And and there was a book written about that, The Grammar of God, by uh, uh, Avia Kushner not too long ago, or probably it was long ago already. So I, I guess I'm curious whether you think that that process changed Judaism in substantial and important ways. And can we see those changes? Or when you look at the impact of the translation of the Torah, the Bible into Yiddish, what, what were the lasting effects of that?
2: Um, I actually, the thing that just occurred to me is an example from the English. The term woman of valor is an example of what the translation of um, the Bible into English for American Jews informed by Jewish understandings of the Bible, what that gave American culture more generally. So the King James Version has a woman of virtue, which a woman of virtue is whatever it meant for the King James translators, it's sometimes understood to be a kind of sexual praise. A woman of valor is, there are all these people, when I, do, when I talk about a woman of valor, I give a talk about this, I have a slideshow of all the people who've gotten something called a woman of valor award. It's now understood to be a cultural category of a public, powerful, philanthropic, or activist woman. And the biblical term that lends it, it its kind of aura was produced by a bunch of people who said the King James translators knew a lot about the Bible, but we know what an Esha is. Esha is. Is, is the Hebrew term for a woman of valor. And Esha in Eastern European Jewish culture means. A woman who supports her husband while she sits and learns Torah. Um, so uh, uh, a woman with some kind of economic power. And they debated and came up with a different term, which is now totally in the currency of American English, whether people know where it comes from or not. And it no longer means a woman who supports her husband while he sits and learns Torah. But the the shift from a certain kind of um, Christian view of women to a view of women that has its roots in Eastern European culture and economics, even, um, becomes available from Hebrew through Yiddish into English through these, this group of Eastern European Jewish translators. I'm talking about the 1917.
1: I have a little bit of a turn for this conversation, but um, a friend of mine... I'll shout out to her because I think she listens to the podcast occasionally. Her name's Rebecca Maxfield. And she directed a contemporary take on a play called God of Vengeance. It's a fascinating play to me on a number of levels. One is just like a good story. I enjoyed it. Another is, it's deeply political. And it opens up a whole slate of questions about Jewish experience there's a torah that gets thrown on stage that maybe that's not a political thing that's just like wow there's a there's a torah that is thrown and maybe that's the most radical thing of it all i don't know um and i guess i wanted to bring that up because in a sense it's so political but it's not at least for me when i watched it i didn't think of it as like so political i mostly thought of it as just a story and Part of my instinct is that like a feature of Yiddish seems to be that the political pieces just sort of breeze their way in because of the factors you identified. Like Yiddish is is a language or a, or a pseudo language like you talked about that is by people who are not centered in their societies, who are speaking, you know, amongst themselves, not to a majority. Like there's ways in which questions of margins and center and questions of power dynamics like just sort of automatically flow in and you don't even notice and i was watching this play in english i i'm not a yiddish speaker but there's something that did about that seemed to make its way into me and so i was curious like are there ways in which the structure of yiddish ties like allows us to explore political dynamics political questions that that like wouldn't be as imp- i don't know as instinctive or impulsive to us in other languages um or am i just going too far and falling into the classic trap of thinking yiddish is like inherently political because some bundists used it that way like i'm curious how you would take that and if god of vengeance ties in i don't know
2: <laughs> well that's really interesting because when god of vengeance played in yiddish on the lower east side it had a, a a nice long run and nobody had any problem with it um, and i think you're right that there are people who find the throwing of the torah on the floor um, by the brothel owner a lot more shocking a moment than a kiss between two women um, an obviously sexual kiss when it was translated into english and it moved uptown to broadway that was when american jews came down on it right so the the person who complained to the vice squad was i think a rabbi silverman of temple emmanuel so it's the uptown jews who will not allow for um, a certain kinds of freedom that can be, it's okay to have that on the Yiddish stage. You can do all kinds of, so there's a politics of uptown, downtown. Um, the, the idea that I talked about how Jews talk about non-Jews in, in internal Jewish languages, but they also criticize themselves in ways that's not allowable in public, let's say. the the notion that, you know, in Yiddish, you could have a play that's about the real scourge of sex trafficking, which was a, a, a very largely Jewish business at the turn of the century. So Jews, especially Eastern European Jews, were totally overrepresented as pimps and as prostitutes in the global sex traffic. And you know, in brothels all over the world, South America, South Africa, Istanbul. And this was hugely shameful to richer Jews. There were certainly people fighting against it within the the Yiddish-speaking world. Um, so that's one dimension of why Yiddish could be more political. It could be more critical of the uh, hypocrisy of there were sex traffickers who were presidents of their synagogues in Chicago and places like that. It was a push to make it, to make there be a kind of American Jewish rule that if you owned a brothel, you were not welcome on the synagogue board. That was the, in other words, we're no longer being nice to pimps. That had to be stated because up until that, there, there wasn't a sense that. You know, how you make your money as a new immigrant. Or how, I mean, there was so much social upheaval that, and there was such an urge to make it in the middle classes that there was no real critique of how people were making their money. And one of the, I mean, the major point of that play is there are people who are trying to buy their way into middle-class Jewish society. Um, and to try to buy their daughters nice Jewish men. And we're all letting it happen. And the truth is, that that was the case. Prostitutes had a harder time making it in a synagogue. But pimps, no problem. Real politics behind this, real live and a well, you know, just functioning politics. It was embarrassing that it was a Jewish business.
1: So frequently we end episodes on you know, forward-looking, future-looking kinds of comments about the state of the Jewish world, this one looks like it's different. I mean, we're ending with a note that you're giving us, a really important historical note about Jewish complicity and deep involvement in human trafficking not so long ago. And there's something that feels right about that. In an episode where we're reflecting on shame and, and all of the complexities of Jewish relationships to those who aren't Jewish, um, a, lot of, a lot of important issues arise. And we're not going to wrap it up with a bow and treat this as necessarily a happy ending. But we really appreciate all of the layers you brought to this conversation, the, the joyous ones, and those that are not on that same emotional wavelength. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you so much. It was really um, a lot of love and not a whole lot of shame. Maybe I'll feel that later.
1: Well, we hope you don't feel it later. We hope it's just the love. But um, thank you again, and thanks to all of you out there listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll stick around with us for all of our remaining episodes in this awesome unit on Yiddish. There's many more to come. They're going to be great. Before we go, and before even I mention all the ways to be in touch with us, a reminder: JudaismUnbound.com/book. That's the mantra today. That's where our Kickstarter lives. That's where this project, Judaism Unbound, bound the book can become a reality. We would deeply appreciate your support on any level to make this happen. Um, it goes a long way. So thank you. I'm pausing. Big emphasis. Find your browser. Go to judaismunbound.com book. Okay, now that you're there, I'll tell you all the different ways that you can be in touch with us. First, there's our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our Twitter feed at, at @JudaismUnbound. Third, there's our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can always email us, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. We really love hearing from our listeners, so please feel free to take us up on any of those different avenues of contact. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.